You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie. G'day, Jordan. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. Um, how, how did you manage to get into the station today? I was going to ask you a little earlier, but I forgot because it was hailing this morning. Oh, that's right. No, I decided instead of riding my bike, I would be pedestrian and go on a tram. Yep. No, I can <laughs> I can completely understand that. Yeah, I but, planned it. <laughs> yeah. We, we've still had some hail going through the night and it's still... I mean, every once in a while, you just get this surge of rain coming across, and occasionally I can hear it through the microphone in the studio. Yeah, I know, <laughs> so. I know. Well, that's right. You can't, you can't predict. So I always feel like I'm a laggard when I don't ride my bike. And, uh, <laughs> but then I thought to myself, no, no, it's really cold and the wind is really strong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it rained. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I was vindicated. Mm, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so we had the budget? Yes. Uh, Look, I think Adam Bant actually summed it up really well when he said it was very much a billionaire's budget. It's hard to say. A bit of alliteration. I know. I know. It's. uh, You kind of wonder what we were all expecting on some level because there was a huge opportunity post COVID to do something at least a little bit different, even in a capitalist sort of sphere. Um, But. Yeah, You're rotten just, to the core. Yeah. Look, one thing that really stood out for me is that the government, and especially after some very credible rape allegations and some issues generally with women in the Liberal Party, the government came out and announced $535 million, which, mm, fair enough, over four years for um, women's services, women's health, um, and generally spruiking it as a win for gender equality. Okay, sure. If we go with that premise, I did some back-of-napkin math a little while ago, divide that over four years, and split that up for about 10 million, approximately, adult women in Australia. Um, So I'm not counting uh, kids in that case. That works out to about 15 bucks a year in (laughs) bonuses for every Australian woman doing it tough. You get 15 bucks of, of services. Oh, fantastic. And that's only just what's been added, right? You have to look at what's been taken away here. Yeah. Um, I think we were discussing the family courts. We, we were discussing the family courts and the, the stripping back of that um, a couple shows back. And you can also point to um, oh, so many... the privatisation of the rapes uh, counselling services. Yes, absolutely, as well. Um, you know, this is... I think that was particularly egregious. That was one thing that really stood out for me. Did you have anything that really jumped out at you from the budget? Uh, the shamelessness regarding aged care 
Uh, oh, yep. I mean, if you look at what's happened in Victoria, for example, uh, the public aged care system had no uh, COVID uh, uh, onslaught, mm. while all the, pri- uh, the private sector, uh, unregulated, uh, despite what the federal government says about its running of the aged care sector, mm-hmm. uh, the, um, the privatised a- area was riddled, uh, was unable to cope. Mm. And it's because there's this uh, insecure work involved in the entire sector. Uh, money goes to that sector and it adds to their uh, shareholders' profits mm. because it's a capitalist system that is unsuited for uh, caring for community. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, it's unsuitable. When there are stakeholders and the business is for profit, then it, it would be seen by the business class that if you are paying anything more than absolute minimum wage to your employers or investing anything more than the minimum in your business, then you are robbing your shareholders. Well, that's what it's for. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not doing anything un, un, that you can't predict. Mm. So when the uh, federal government gives more money to private schools and more money to uh, mm. private operators of mm. health services, etc., yeah. or, or private operators called social housing uh, moguls. Yep, absolutely. Fancy having a social mo- um, uh, social housing mogul. Yeah. Um, these people are really uh, hiding behind the cover of corporations, mm. uh, there are actual individuals behind these uh, gra- this grafting, um, this marrow sucking of uh, the uh, public purse. Mm. Uh, and when you've got uh, basically incompetent and venal uh, parliamentarians, uh, then you need a change. And I mm. don't care what people say when they say, oh, you know, the Labor and Liberals are exactly the same. Well, actually, I don't think they are exactly the same. And I think that there needs to be uh, a muddying of the water. What you have to do with parliamentarians is keep keep them dancing, I say. Keep them dancing. <laughs> <laughs> On some level, yeah, absolutely. So what have we got coming up for the show today? Well, um, I've got uh, a, quite a long piece. I, I went with uh, Joe Toscano and he, and others on May the 1st to what I would call, having a Catholic background, the uh, the seven um, uh, anarchist cross um, <laughs> stations of the cross around <laughs> Melbourne, right, which is hilarious. But it was really interesting, actually, and uh, the people wanted to know when we were going to play it. So what I've done is crafted it together so that we can share to, with, us, with you, the listeners, the uh, anarchists, uh, the revealed anarchist Melbourne that uh, Joe Ta- Toscano took us on. Hmm. Uh, it's really quite revealing and it, ref- it reflects the past, but also the present and uh, possible futures, which hmm. is which is Joe's way. Hmm. So that's the f- first thing that we're going to listen to. Absolutely. And then we're going into the week that was. Um, I'm really looking forward to this week's Over the Wall as well, as we had a great pre-budget one last week, um, so great credit, um, but I think this one will be very particularly interesting, and we've got a couple of weeks of it coming up. Um, and then uh, later on, I went along to the Unions for Refugees barbecue, which was really fascinating because I got to speak to two of the refugees who had gone through the absolute ringer in terms of Australia's detention centre policy. They had spent eight years 
and coming over to Australia via the Medivac legislation, ultimately as well, the reasons that they came over to Australia, they were never treated as well. Um, anyway, they delivered some shameful? great... Oh, it absolutely abhorrent. It's really disappointing. You know, that, that that's such a stain on Australia, in my opinion. I mean, I can't actually... I mean, if someone's uh, ill, it's your responsibility, if you can offer succour, to actually help. Mm, absolutely. And then to bring yeah. them over and then not help. I really pity the uh, people who are employed as the uh, security guards and other types mm. who are supposed to... Uh, Must be such a moral conflict. Yeah, yeah. It's actually quite a disgrace and Mm. a pressure on those people as workers. Mm. Very good point. Anyway, um, we might have a little chat as well about some union activity that's been going on, and I might discuss that later on. But, um, yeah, I guess we'll just get into it for this week. Palestinians are being silenced and massacred. We're asking you to stand in solidarity with us. Over the past month, we have witnessed Israeli settlers stealing the homes of more than 3,000 Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah through forced ethnic displacement. In response to this, Palestinians of Sheikh Jarrah began peacefully protesting against their forced displacement. Israeli settlers responded to this with violence backed by the Israeli police. This has now escalated to violence towards Palestinians in Jerusalem, who demonstrated in solidarity with Sheikh Jarrah, as well as peaceful worshippers in Al-Aqsa Mosque. We have seen the settler colonial violence spread to Gaza, where airstrikes have killed 65 Palestinians so far, including 16 children and wounded 300. Most recently, Israeli settlers have broken into homes in Yaffa, Haifa and Akka to assault and kill Palestinians. What is happening is not new. It is the continuation of the Nakba. Nakba, translating to catastrophe, are the events of 1948 in which more than 700,000 Palestinian refugees were forcibly displaced from their homes. The Israeli settler colony was subsequently founded. What is happening in Palestine today is the most recent manifestation of the Nakba. We Palestinians in Naam, Melbourne, echo the demands of our siblings across Palestine who are resisting settler colonial violence. We are protesting to save Sheikh Jarrah, to protect the holy site of Al-Aqsa Mosque, to end the siege and Israeli aggression on Gaza, and to say no to ethnic cleansing and settler colonial violence. Join us this Saturday, May 15th, at 1pm, outside the State Library, to have our voices heard and our demands met. Along with your signs and banners, please bring your mask and hand sanitizer to keep the rally COVID safe. For more information, head to the free Palestine Melbourne Facebook page. See our supporter. All right, well, thank you for coming. It's good to see the, a small crowd here to uh, learn about this city's history. Uh, it's not a forgotten history. It's a buried history. I mean, it's a buried history. Now, first of all, I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land who never ceded their sovereign rights to this land, the people of the Kulin Nations, and uh, we uh, give our best wishes to their elders, past, present and emerging. And let's not forget they never ceded their sovereign rights to the land. Now, the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, this is Chummy Place. This is the only recognition of Australian anarchism, public recognition, anywhere in Australia. It is named after a colourful character 
chummy, Fleming. Born in England, came out here when he was 18, started work at the age of 10. And on the 1st of May, 1886, and we'll go through the history later on, but on the 1st of May, he was one of the foundation members of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, which was formed on the 1st of May, 1886. Him, uh, David Andre, William Andre, the great Monty Miller, who was jailed, I think it was 1916 or 1917, because he was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World who were at the forefront of the anti-conscription struggle during World War I. And, uh, and uh, Jack Andrews, who was considered to be the Kropotkin of the uh, Southern Hemisphere. If you don't know who Kropotkin is, well, he was a very well-known uh, anarchist writer and activist. So this is all that's left. This is it. This is the recognition. Now, just behind here was 6 Argyle Place, where Chummy Fleming lived. And Chummy Fleming was a great agitator. He spent more time in jail than out of jail because of his agitation for working people. He never had any children, or as far as we know, he never had any relationships. So he's on this planet for over 84 years. So he had to do something to fill in his time. And he became the agitator extraordinaire. He really was. And he lived just here, 6 Argyle Place. Yeah, well... He didn't believe in God, so... <laughs> no, you can bless... I believe in the spiritual great. All right, you can bless him. Now, Chummy's claim to fame was that on the 1st of May, 1892, he organised and led the first May Day march in this city. The 1st of May, 1892. And there's a long history that goes to that. In 1884... The combined trade unions of Canada and North America designated the 1st of May 1886 as a day of international protest for the eight-hour day. Now, although we're told all workers got the eight-hour day in 1856, it was basically the tradespeople. People who didn't have trades were still struggling for the eight-hour day in this country in, uh, in, uh, you know, in the 20th century. So. What happened was that on that day, on the 1st of May, 1886, people who'd belonged to the Australian Secular Society, the more radical element of the Australian Secular Society broke off from the society and formed the Melbourne Anarchist Club has a response to that call for international solidarity and protest for the eight-hour day. And Chummy Fleming took that forward and, uh, and members of the club took that forward. And as I said, the first May Day March, the first May Day March had over 5,000 people involved in it. Now, Chummy Fleming, I'll give you a little bit of history about Chummy. He, uh, as I said, he was what you'd call the pinnacle of activism. He was involved... When, Feder when they had the big Federation Party at the Exhibition Centre, he gate-crashed the Federation Party and walked around followed by three detectives because they didn't want a, a ruckus at this great Federation Party because they had photographs then. And he ate his full 
shook the hands of all the major politicians and called them all the names under the sun. That was Chummy Fleming. He spent a, a month in jail because he was involved in a campaign to open the State Library to the working people on Sunday, because on Sunday was the only day of rest. Unfortunately, the working people weren't interested in the State Library. And a few months after it opened, it closed again on Sunday because people weren't going. Now, Chummy Fleming was the type of bloke who was expelled from the Trades Hall Council in 1904, although he'd been the head of the bootmakers' uh, union for uh, unfriendly activities, in other words, for speaking his mind. And Chummy Fleming was the person who, in May 1902, could be 02, when the governor, Lord Hopeton, was travelling down the Princess Bridge, he jumped on the carriage of the governor and then harangued him for an hour about the plight of the unemployed. The governor, who was pissed off with the Australian Parliament because they refused to pay him what he he required to live the lifestyle he did in England, struck up a friendship with Chummy Fleming because he was a brave man, right? And he lent him money to build the house, which was called Hopeton, which Chummy Fleming called Hopeton after Lord Hopeton. And then when Lord Hopeton resigned as Governor-General, pissed off the fact they wouldn't pay him what he was worth, I suppose, he gave Chummy Fleming because he was an honest man, that's one thing Chummy was, was honest, 300 bottles of champagne and money to distribute amongst the destitute and unemployed of Melbourne because the government wasn't, the federal government was doing nothing for the unemployed. So this is the type of bloke he was. Now he died in 1915 and if you look at, read the accounts, it's quite funny, he was, there was nothing of any use in the house. He, he died in the most wretched physical circumstances on the 25th or the 26th of January 1950 and he had been leading the May Day marches since 1892 although different political groups took over the running of the marches like the Communist Party who didn't like him and he'd start ahead a half an hour before the march so he could lead it and they'd catch it and just went on and on it was and every Sunday he would go down to the Yarra Bank where uh, Mr Kane uh, Singh uh, Jr who's now dead, privatised the Yarra Bank, which was our bank where, you know, people would go and speak their minds. He would go down there every Sunday and speak about the glories of anarchism with under two red flags with the word anarchy in white and the word freedom in white uh, embroidered on the flag. Now, those flags now reside in the library and occasionally they're put on display. And he was such a, uh, a difficult person that when he died, although there was nothing in his house, the police came and took out everything that was there in case they could, you know, find more information about people he'd influenced over the years. So, so he had a profound impact. He was a real activist. He was a bootmaker. He worked hard as a bootmaker. He was involved in assisting the machinists, which were mainly women in the 1890s, uh, with the help of Rosa Stone, who was then known, later on known as Rosa Summerfield, to set up the machinist union as far as the bootmakers were concerned. So he was a great trade unionist who believed strongly in direct action uh, as the way forward. Unfortunately, 
as different factions took over Trades Hall, he became persona non grata. As I said, in 1904, he was expelled from Trades Hall. But they didn't stop him doing his activities. Now, so this is all that's left. So good on him. And the thing is, the reason I'm doing this tour, as you know, you're not paying any money, so <laughs> it's free. The reason I'm doing it is because while we remember these people, they still live. And when we forget them, they're gone forever. And the task of this little, you know, little, little walk is basically to remember the men and women involved in those struggles, which were instrumental in creating the type of society that we would like to have. And many of the advances that have occurred have occurred because of people like Chummy Fleming and the other members of the Melbourne Anarchist Club who've been written out of uh, the history of the... Uh, this country's history, and unfortunately most people wouldn't even know, and you wouldn't expect them to know. The next stop, in case you get lost, is uh, Trades Hall, Ligon Street, this end of Ligon Street. Now this is, as you know, is Melbourne's Trades Hall. This was the first Trades Hall built in the world. The original building was here in 1856, this was a direct consequence of two events. The Eureka Rebellion, which changed the nature of Victorian society. The fact that a number of radicals were elected to parliament. People who today would have been in prison for life, like Lawler, Humphrey, you know, for uh, being involved in uh, an armed struggle, an armed uprising against the Queen. They were tried, acquitted, and within 12 months, the Victorian government understood they needed to make peace with the rebels because the rebels had the people's support. So this land was granted by the Victorian government to the workers during the eight hour struggle for that very reason, because of that radical tendency which continues, which put Victoria at the cutting edge as far as workers' rights were concerned. The reason we stopped here is when this is renovated, I want you to come back in your own time and go into the foyer. What is the thing you see whenever you enter a little town? What's the thing you see in every town in this country? A war memorial. During World War I, 403,000 Australian men, mainly men, and a few uh, thousand uh, women as nurses volunteered to fight in the Great War to end all wars which turned out to be a war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet. Now, when you listen to the rhetoric around World War I, you would think that this was a united nation. We were a united nation as far as World War I is concerned. We need to remember that Australia was divided. And on one side were the ruling classes and investors, capitalists, and on the other side were sections of the working class, not all, sections, the Catholic Church and women's groups. And there was so much agitation and so much problem with the, the government of the time, they were forced to hold a plebiscite in December 1916 to hold a plebiscite for conscription. And that plebiscite was lost because the Australian people voted against conscription. In December 1917, the same plebiscite was held again and it was lost by a greater margin. And it was the anti-war movement 
which saved another 120,000 Australian men and women from dying on the European killing fields. 62,000 died on the European killing fields and never came back, and another 60,000 died of their war wounds within a decade of coming back. That's from 400,000 volunteers. That's one in three. Then I remember, those of you who are regular listeners to my program may remember, I used to have a bit of a stash with Alma Morton as we changed programs. Now, Alma was a survivor of World War I because her father was returned shell shock, which basically meant in those days post-traumatic stress disorder. And as a little girl, she remembers at two or three o'clock in the morning, he would herd the family into the dining room, put his gun against across his knees and say, the Huns are coming, the Huns are coming. So these men's participation from a population of five million had an extraordinary impact on this society and how this society developed. Now, I think the important thing to remember is that here, in this building, is the only memorial that I'm aware of in this country to that peace movement. Down at uh, RMIT Story Hall, the old Story Hall, that was the headquarters of the Women's Peace Army. And if you look at photographs of that time, they had the biggest demonstration ever in the history of this city. And we think we've had big demonstrations where one in four men, women and children joined the protest against the war and encouraged people to vote no for conscription. And in there, hidden away, and it's hidden away because it would have been defaced and destroyed because of the way history has been rewritten regarding Anzac Day and what Anzac means and militarism, you know, it would have been defaced. And that's why it's actually in the hallway of uh, the hall. So when you've got a moment, when it's redone, hopefully they haven't uh, moved it, come in and have a look and uh, shed a few tears because they saved more people than anybody else. Because there's no exaggeration to say on days when 10, or 8,000 troops died in one day on the Battle of the Somme, 8,000 in one day. There's no exaggeration to say another 60 to 100,000 young Australian men would have been sacrificed on the European killing fields if the conscription plebiscites had been successful. Okay? Now let's move on. Now, what are we doing outside Opera Australia? We have a mezzo-soprano amongst us. Would you like to give us a song? All right. Now, why the Victorian Agricultural Hall? Well, the first thing is, it's across the road from Trades Hall. And the new international Yeah. Well, we may be able to teach you something today. When... Um, when Mussolini took over Italy, a flood of Italian anarchist refugees came to Australia. Because Australia, because of all the loss of men in World War I, was short of labour. And because the Canucks had been de deported because of the white Australia policy, well, many had been deported, the fact was there was a shortage of labour in the woollen mills in Geelong and in the cane fields in North Queensland. Most of the anarchists who came were from northern Italy and they were skilled knitters, skilled industrial knitters who didn't need to be trained, 
and obviously everybody else was cutting cane. So two men who I'll mention are Francesco Camagnola, who actually met the anarchists from Jura Books in the early 80s, 1980s, and uh, rekindled his anarchist spirit, and Francesco Fantine, who lies buried in an ossuary in Murchison with other Italian prisoners of war. And I'll speak about Francesco. So Camagnola and Fantine, oops, come, come through, come through, just doing a history lesson, it's all right. So, so Camagnola and, and, and Fantine were instrumental in being involved in activity across the country, assaulting the Italian um, uh, consuls around the country, pulling off their fascist badge because many of them had been killed, many of them had been imprisoned, many of them would continue to be imprisoned. The Australian trade union movement, to their chagrin, really liked what was happening in Germany and Italy. And very few trade unionists took much notice of the new guard, which was emerging in this country, the fascist uh, elements in this country. So Fantin and Camagnola came up with this brilliant idea of hiring the Agricultural Hall as a socialist anarchist club for Italian refugees and anybody else who wanted to come. And they'd have dancers in here, they'd have musicians in here, and it continued for about three years. They formed a relationship with Trades Hall and soon most of Trades Hall became anti-fascist. And to a significant degree, that was because of that personal interaction and the fact that these two anarchists had decided that this was the only way to halt things. Now, Francesco Fantine, it's a very sad story. He, um, he was interned in 1942 as an enemy alien with enemy aliens, with all these Italian fascists and Nazi sympathisers at Camp Love Day uh, just outside of Adelaide. He was murdered, I think, on the 16th of November, uh, 1942. And we knew about him because some people had done a little bit of research in him. And I eventually was able to track down that his, uh, he was buried in a crypt in Murchison with 214 other Italian prisoners of war and uh, internees who died in custody. What the Italian community did around Shepparton they raised money, over £50,000, built the mausoleum and then brought the bodies of everybody back to that mausoleum. Everybody has an individual crypt. And on the Sunday nearest um, Armistice Day, November, the crypt is open. People can go in and pay their respects. Uh, the Anarchist Mir Institute has been organising uh, uh, people to go there now for the last six years and we pay our respects to Francesca. He has no relatives, he had no children, he is by himself, so we just go there just to pay our respects to what he did, because he was an anarchist, he was an anti-militarist, he was an anti-authoritarian, and uh, you know, he fought strongly and he lost his life. Could you imagine the Australian government being so stupid as to put an anti-fascist in with 350 fascists? He was bludgeoned to death while he was bending down to uh, drink some water from a tap. I mean, just an extraordinary situation.
When we mention their names, we remember them and we remember the story. Now, he became such an important issue that his fate, because remember the Australian government had come into an alliance with the Communist Party of Australia because the Communists had joined, you know, the anti-fascists in the, in the Second World War once they changed side, was it 40-41? Um, and questions were asked in Parliament about why he had been interned. Uh, but the trouble is, you know what it's like. They all look the same, don't they? Yeah. They're black or white or yellow or Italians or Greeks. They all look the same, don't they? How am I supposed to know who's the fascist? Who's the and I'll tell you a funny story that happened to me. When I was a little boy, I used to be taken by my parents into... I was, uh, I was about five or six and I, was take, I used to be taken by my parents. We used to live on a farm into Fortitude Valley in Brisbane to the only granita machine in Australia, right? And there was this really well-dressed gentleman, much more better dressed than I am, with a cane, you know, about my age. And he dropped a pound. Did it have pound coins or something? I can't believe. Whatever. He dropped a big coin and I picked it up and I gave it to him and he said, he looked around like I'm doing now, you know, playing the show pony. He said, let the boy keep the money. Let the boy keep the money. Now that man turned out to be Dr. Castellano. Mussolini was so interested in getting the Italian diaspora together to support the fascists that he sent four doctors to North Queensland to set up medical clinics which the Italian fascists uh, bankrolled to provide basic services to Italian migrants and refugees. And it did pay dividends because the Italian community was split uh, regarding uh, what was happening in Italy at that particular point in time. So that's just a little historical. Uh... Now we go off to the eight-hour monuments. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan, and uh, we are following the anarchist walk given by Joe Toscano through Melbourne on May the 1st, 2021. This is the eight-hour monument. It's got a check, very chequered history. Uh, it was actually built in 1903. Just in case you think Melbourne is the centre of the universe and the eight-hour day movement started here, it didn't. The first workers to get an eight-hour day in Australia were the stonemasons in Sydney. In Sydney. Yes, really. Yes. Oh, yes, I can see it. How many days did they pick this for? Oh, it must have been four or five months at least. They got in 1855 in Melbourne. They didn't get it until 1856. And that's what... Maybe the police think that was going to happen today because what happened in 1856, I think it was around May time, all the stonemasons came off all the major construction sites. Remember, they were the key trades people of the day. The stonemasons ruled the city because they had the skills to build the city. So they pulled them off... The, uh, they had a meeting where you'd expect at the Golden Fleece Hotel down the road, uh, designated a day and then marched around and pulled off people off the building sites, Melbourne University, Parliament House. And they all said, we're not going back to work until we get an eight-hour day. But don't get excited. It was only an eight-hour day for tradespeople and it was, only, it was still a six-day week. So actually working 40 hours. So the Labor Day, which we used to be celebrated here with such gusto, uh, was 
a recognition of that struggle. Now, if you came here, say, in 1890, 1891, there'd be 80 to 90,000 trade unionists marching up here to Trades Hall with floats, banners, and you can see some of the pictures. You'd have some in Trades Hall, and I'm sure there'd be a book at the International Bookshop that's got them. <laughs> you know, extraordinary. And then, as you know, um, Balti fought, we've got to kill this Workers' Day, and what they did is they began Moomba. Now, Mr. Onus, I've forgotten his first name, used to work with the, he was an Aboriginal, he, William Onus, right? William Onus, uh, the father of uh, the well-known artist Lynn Onus. He worked at Trades Hall and they wanted an exotic name. And this is a true story. So they came up, the, the new organisers, and uh, they asked him for a name for Moomba, for uh, the festival. He said, Moomba. Moomba, he said, Moomba. And what it actually means is up your bum in the local dialect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True story. So why are we here at the Tanaminawaya Morbohina Monument? As you know, the first public executions which occurred in Victoria, in Melbourne, were, the, were here on this very spot on the 20th of January 1842 when two indigenous freedom fighters from Tasmania were hung for resisting white colonisation. So why are we here? Simple. This is an anarchist initiative. This is the first major monument in a city in this country almost 220 years, 230 years after colonisation began which acknowledges the frontier wars. Now, I want to pay some respects to the organising committee. I mean, the struggle started in 2004 and it went till 2016. It involved many, many different tactics which we used, but the six members of the committee were anarchists. Four of them are now dead, and I'd like to pay my respects to them, and that's why I've brought you here. There was my late wife, Ellen Jose, who was a Torres Strait Islander. There was Rick Simpson who died in January this year. There was Bill French who died at 99 and almost a few days older than the nice prince. Bill French and his partner Joy French. There's only two surviving members of that organising committee. John O'Brien who's not in very good health, who comes from Newcombe outside Geelong and yours truly who's in great health if I take my tablets <laughs> so uh, so what I'm saying is small groups even now can do things which can have a major impact because this has a symbolic impact this monument we talked about the peace movement in World War one we talked about the monuments to the war of World War one and now we're talking about monuments to those people who were murdered, men, women and children, murdered for protecting their way of life and their lands and their freedoms. Now let's not forget, most of Australia's wars have been fought on other people's lands for other people's reasons, not to protect and defend this country, most of this country's wars, and we tend to forget about it. So small groups can have an impact, but it's about being tenacious.
and it's about changing strategies constantly. We changed strategies, we had small gatherings, then we formed, we opened up the organisation, got more people involved, then we took a parliamentary stance. I stood as Lord Mayor, that's right, of the City of Melbourne. Unfortunately, my fellow citizens didn't think I was suitable material. But the idea of standing as Lord Mayor, which nobody seemed to realise at the time, was to act forge political alliances with uh, other people standing who had a chance of being elected on the council, exchanging preferences to ensure they were elected, and to the Green and Cathy Oaks, uh, you know, they, they followed up, they brought the issue up in council, and then we continued many other uh, strategies to ensure the monument was built. We had resistance not just from the Murdoch media, not just from the Government Guild at ABC, but even significant sections of the Aboriginal community. And that's why when we first started the struggle, we made certain conditions. And the conditions was we would only work with the radical elements of the Aboriginal community. Because people seem to forget there is a whole range of political opinions in, among Indigenous uh, people regarding the best way to tackle issues. So that's the way we tackled it. Radicals working with radicals to achieve this result. We're going now to 213 Russell Street, which is on, on this side, just before the pub, the corner of the pub at Little Burke Street. It's a very, I think it's the most important, second most important site we'll visit uh, regarding anarchism in this country, okay? Wandering through Chinatown in 1892, this was the place you'd hang out. This was the store of David Andre, who was the driving force be, uh, behind the establishment of the uh, Melbourne uh, Anarchist Club on the 1st of May, 1886. The club divided. The club came to an end in 1888 on a very important question about the use of violence in struggle. And the club disintegrated. David Andre then, who is full of energy, wrote two, two books which you can access through the State Library, uh, The Melbourne Riots and how Harry Holfast and his friends emancipated the workers. But he was a businessman. He was, him and his brother were businessmen. They were publishers, they were printers, and they were way ahead of the rest of Australia in 1892. They were pro-women. This is the organisation, the Man Melbourne Anarchist Club. And they were the only radical organisation, the only working group, the only workplace organisation, the only trade unionists who were not anti-Chinese. They were anti-racists. And on top of that, David was also believed that animals had rights and he believed that the environment was fundamental to the survival of the human race. So he listened to these things in 1892. So he put his money where his mouth was and he rented these three stories. Downstairs was a vegetarian restaurant. On top of that was a radical bookshop and on top of that was a radical meeting room. Now obviously, he went bankrupt. 
Unfortunately, he was bankrupt by 1893. This huge venture came to nothing. So then, you've got to remember that Melbourne, marvellous Melbourne, had become terrible Melbourne by 1893. Melbourne was in the midst of a huge depression, bigger than the Great Depression of the 20s and 30s, and over one third of people were unemployed. Starvation was a real issue. The anarchists were very successful. They were selling up to 6,000 copies of their magazine, Honesty, every month. Every month they were selling up to 6,000 copies of their magazine. They were a huge force in this city. So what did the authorities do to try to nip this growing movement, unemployed movement, in the bud? They gave away free land to the unemployed. To get the unemployed out of Melbourne, they offered them 10 acres of land in the Gippsland, on French Island, in the Dandenong Ranges. There was only one stipulation, that you stayed on the bloody land, right? Now, Paul David Andre had, uh, he had five children to support, as well as his partner who was unemployed. So they took up the selection near Callista and he set up a post office and a little news agency. In 1896, there was a great fire through the whole of uh, the Dandenong Ranges and he was burnt out. His family was burnt out. They were left with their clothes on their backs. His daughter died in the fire and a few years later, his two of his sons also died. So by 1903, David Andre was a broken man and he uh, was admitted to the asylum at the Yarrabend Asylum and he spent the next 25 years in the asylum from 1903 to 1928 when he died and the only entry I could find in the asylum notes was that he was a kind man with a smile on his face which I think is a fitting epitaph for a human being of such quality. Now it may be that uh, when you look at his life he may have had bipolar disorder because he had feverish bursts of activity, they ran a cooperative in Albert Park, they ran the vegetarian restaurant, they were printing books, they were holding radical bookshops. His brother William was a little bit stronger. He uh, set up the first, uh, once the anarchist movement uh, kind of disintegrated, beginning of the 20th, 20th century, he set up a radical bookshop at 215 uh, Burke Street and then being an entrepreneur, he also set up a radical bookshop in Sydney. So, but uh, he died in the 1930s from a freak surfing accident. He was surfing at Bondi and, uh, I mean, in the surf, dived into the surf, broke his neck and died. So the next stop is our last stop, where I'll read you out the principles of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, which was uh, formed on the 1st of uh, May 1886. Now, you know, people tell you anarchists are not organised. Now, that's what they say. But the reality is, anarchists are the most organised people in the world because we organise ourselves. We don't need to be organised. And I said we'd finish by 12.30, and we will finish by 12.30. Now, if you look up the top there, the third window that's up, the Venetian Blight, third window, top story, that... 
this is not the original building that's been burnt down, but pretend it's the original building. Uh, the Anarchist Moon Institute set up its headquarters in Her Majesty's Theatre. And their office was in the third window. They had a printing press up there and their meeting rooms, and that's where they had discussions. So, in order to keep the historical flavour, being the 1st of May 2021, 131 years, I think, since 1886, I would like to read out the manifesto of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, which was read out on that site 131 years ago. The Melbourne Anarchist Club extends its greetings to the liberty-loving citizens of these young colonies and appeals to them to assist its members in their efforts to remove those public sentiments and public institutions which have been transplanted here from the northern hemispheres, retard social progress and happiness, and to substitute in their place the enabling principles of liberty, equality and fraternity. The objects of the Melbourne Anarchist Club are eight points. See how organised they were? They didn't rely on leaders to tell them what to do. One, to foster public interest in the great social questions of the day by promoting inquiry in every possible way. To promote free public discussions of all social questions and to circulate and publish literature throwing light upon existing evils of society and the methods necessary for their removal. Nothing has changed, has it? Two, this you'll like, to foster and extend the principles of self-reliance, self-help and a spirit of independence amongst the people. Three, to uphold and maintain the principles of liberty, equality and fraternity, and they define them. By liberty we mean the equal liberty of each, limited alone by the equal liberty of all. So when you see those COVID-19 protests, think about it. The equal liberty of each is limited by the equal liberty of all. And by fraternity, we mean the principle that denies national and class distinctions, asserts that, my apologies here, the brotherhood of man and says, the world is my country. By equality, we mean the equality of opportunity for each individual. Four, to advocate and seek to achieve the abolition of all monopolies and despotisms which destroy the freedom of the individual and which thereby check social progress and prosperity. Five, to expose and oppose that colossal swindle government and to advocate abstention from voting, resistance to taxation, and private cooperation or individual action. Six, to foster mutual trust and fraternity amongst the working people of all ranks and to turn their attention to the common foes, the priests and the politicians and their co-adjudicators attacking principles rather than individuals. Seven, to unite the cooperation of all who have realised the innate evils of our governing institutions and desire their speedy dissolution for the general benefit of humanity, and eight, to promote the formation of voluntary institutions similar to the Melbourne Anarchist Club throughout Victoria and the neighbouring colonies, and with their consent, 
to eventually unite with them forming the Australasian Association of Anarchists, something we have never been able to do in 131 years. But these are principles. Obviously, there are things we may agree or disagree with, but the essence of the principles is the essence of what we struggle for today. Solidarity Bricky team listener when the government showed it is not even slightly averse to a bit of welfare. Well, corporate welfare, which is good for all of us. The big, filthy, rich corporates will always be better off under a coalition, caring business class, hayseed and cheap shit government, big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs boasted. But not quite so averse to not so much welfare for the poorest or the poor. Well, it didn't have to say much about them. It slashed the doll they bludged onto sub-poverty levels a few weeks ago. Job done. The poorest of the poor will always be better off under a coalition government. Although Josh didn't quite elaborate on that, which, which might have helped. And I was led to reflect on the very first week that was all those years ago, back in 1983, the very first world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul's budget. After I'd written a piece in some now-defunct left newspaper extolling Paul for fooling capitalism to think he was on its side when his real intent was to destroy capital and create a socialist utopia. And I was asked to read it in this time slot, then called Paravion, as a one-off. Well, 38 years later, Josh is outdoing French clocks and bespoke tailored suits, Paul, by telling us workers will always be better off under a coalition government. And given the alternative is a socialist government, sadly he isn't that far off the mark. Something for everyone, a comedy tonight. And we could hear the laughter of the caring business class as they crowded bums up with their well-preserved snouts in the trough. Money for aged care, for instance. That is, money for the aged care private sector, who apparently can't exist without the public trough. Leading us to ponder why, therefore, the government should simply not run the whole show itself and save all those handouts. Although, with an extra $10 a day, aged care residents will be heaps better off enjoying an extra two or three cocktail frankfurts for their evening meal. And Josh assured us the caring aged care employers would never dream of just pocketing the extra handouts. No, I was being too cynical about the government not really caring for workers. After all, Workers will always be better off under a coalition government. 
and Josh has provided trillions to train workers and offer apprenticeships to address the shortage of skilled workers. After all, the caring business class has long complained of a shortage of skilled wage slaves, or sorry, workers, and shame on those who fail to comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy, who suggest maybe if caring employers want trained workers and apprentices, they should pay for them themselves, when obviously it is far more efficient for those who can't avoid paying their taxes, meeting the costs on behalf of those who do avoid paying their taxes. And women will always be better off under a coalition government because the government knows that childcare has nothing to do with men, which in many cases is sadly true, but goodness me, how this government just loves women and now knows they do more than just use roads, presumably to drive their children to childcare, and this revelation has nothing to do with a few recent events in which some voters thought the government might have been just a little insensitive, but no, this government is all sensitivity when it comes to women, especially with an election looming, and the homeless will always be better off under a coalition government, which is just as well as we search for any sensitivity in that, that area amid all these handouts. No, not much. Well, well, not any is not much, but at least they have the consolation of knowing they are better off, like the Terranullius people who will always be, well, we know the dictum, and they'll think they're in nirvana as they feel so much better off in their jail cells and lethal, uh, sorry, uh, police vans. Well, thank goodness there is bipartisan agreement between the caring business class and socialist parties on what's good for the Terranullius people, whom both know have no idea what's good for themselves, maintaining their savage pagan beliefs like opposing good enterprising resource companies disrupting a, a bit of their heritage, placing themselves between a mining company and a bag of wealth not understanding that that wealth is good for all of us, including themselves. That's why we have to think for them. And the deepest thinker for them is Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist, Bolt Through the Head, who knows not one Terranullius child was ever stolen and not one Terranullius person has died in custody. Well, more correctly, more whites die in custody than Terranullius criminals. And if any person emerges claiming children were stolen or blacks do die in custody, it's odds on, bolt through the head will know that person is not a real Terranullius person. Indeed, perhaps none of them are because they didn't exist in Terranullius. The law decreed that, and who are we to question the law? And what incentives for the Terranullius lot to lift their ambition? How generous that the budget slashes taxes, encouraging them to get a job. And better, more and more and more handouts for elite private schools, encouraging the Terranullius people to get a decent education, where they can meet important, caring business class leaders of the future who will be able to assist them to get a job, contribute, become responsible wage slaves, oh, sorry, nearly did it again, workers, and their elite school chums wouldn't dream of exploiting them. The government's thought of everything, although coming up with the elite school fees might be a, a bit of a problem. Bit of a pity about the state public school sector, but it's just because the government wants more and more of the elite to get a decent education. And Josh and the team also excelled at addressing climate change, especially when they know it's crap providing trillions to establish a body to do whatever it can, which probably isn't much, to counter the floods and fires and rising tides and other effects of the crap. We suppose the idea of providing funding to address the cause of all those weather events and changes uh, didn't cross your mind, uh, we asked Josh. 
the climate will always be better off under a coalition government, he boasted again. And we are providing funds for technology, not taxes. Technical solutions like burying your head in the sand, clean coal, clean gas, clean uranium. Uh, but that's an oxymoron, and try as they might, they can't get burying their head in the sand to work. Uh, which shows the forward thinking of this government working to find a solution. The climate will always be, yeah, we know. And Josh pointed out there was no comparison with the global financial crisis when the caring business class opposition attacked the socialist government for its irresponsible profligate budgeting, and now no comparison. How could anyone compare the GFC to a pandemic? More the panic bit under the GFC. This profligacy is what, is what is right, what is needed to help the economy recover. Socialist irresponsible profligacy and caring business class sensible, balanced fiscal wisdom. And on balance, Josh and the team, who until a year or so ago were so committed to a budget surplus, now assure us the budget should be back in balance and even enjoying a surplus before you can say the year 3000. Speaking of the socialists, Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi revealed his dedication to socialist principles by promising to train lots of young entrepreneurs to become caring business class bosses. What forward thinking, because the one thing True Blue Aussie so badly needs is more and more bosses. Hopefully, Anthony's inspired idea will also educate the young entrepreneurs how to keep the bloody, lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions in their place. Although the budget claimed the economy was rolling along brilliantly, it turns out it's not rolling along brilliantly enough for the caring employers to solve one of their biggest worries keeping them awake at night, slow wages growth. It's a real problem for the poor dears, isn't it? The budget's boon for terra nullius people reminds us of non-people with no land, non-people non-land, like the former owners of Palestine, whom the Western powers that be wisely decided had no right to have a land, and true to form, they're still complaining about being non-people in a non-land, as Zion practices a microcosm of the big land grab by declaring these Palestinian families have no right to the homes they've occupied for eons, homes which now belong to Zion. Zion settlers because Zion law declared these were their homes and declared the non-people living in them were breaking the law by living in them. Therefore, terrorists, terrorists, as Zion big supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, pointed out unnecessarily, not that he had to, for families who refused to leave the homes they have occupied for eons so Zion settlers can move in are obviously terrorists. Well, in fairness to Zion, if these are non-people, then they are not evicting people from their homes. And top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin yet again for its coverage decrying the terrorists and quoting the US of the UN of the US of the world, decrying the terrorist violence, 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 without once bothering to mention the catalyst for the killing of the terrorists and destruction of their homes and neighbourhoods was the little matter of the evictions, their refusal to hand their homes over to Zionist settlers, and at no time informing its deep-thinking readership that Zion is an illegal occupying force. Lord Rupert obviously didn't think that even remotely relevant or important. Speaking of Lord Rupert, in my working journalist days, that is paid journalism days, I always thought the headline over a story should reflect something about the story, like accuracy or at least what it's about. But how wrong I was. 
The Scottish Nationalist Party was returned with 64 seats, one more than it won when it also won last time. Yet the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headline told us, Bellicose Sturgeon falls short. OK, forget the bellicose bit, another example of Lord Rupert's idea of objectivity, but surely Sturgeon wins would have been a touch more accurate. We've been following the fortunes of the Elon Musk make profit SpaceX rockets. Four in a row blowing up on landing, the company's slight understatement, it was a successful flight, we just have to work on the landing. Well, yes, that wouldn't be a bad idea. So good news this week, the fifth attempt hit the skies, hit space and hit the ground without blowing up. A safe landing, much excitement. Well, a small fire engulfed the base, but was quickly put out. The company pointing out this was not unusual with the methane fuel we're using, which should give added confidence to any potential volunteer would-be astronauts who can now rush to get on a flight knowing they've got a 20% chance of the thing not blowing up. Seriously, does Elon really expect the punters to fork out millions to fly in the thing? Punters being accurate, given the odds. Just wonder what that methane fuel is doing for the environment. An environment environment we learned this week that will always be better off under a coalition government. Not that I ever watched the crap, but finally, thank you ABC Radio yesterday for alerting us that the guest on tomorrow's Insiders will be Josh Thoughtful on them to warn us. Good morning. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today, we begin a two-part look at the federal budget, which was handed down by Josh Frydenberg on Tuesday. Even before the budget was handed down on Tuesday, it was becoming clear that Australia had dodged a major bullet. The recession had made most of its V-shaped climb back from recession much quicker than predicted. The huge fiscal stimulus of last year had paid off and Lord Keane sits up in heaven with a smile on his face. Only six months ago, Treasury predicted that post-JobKeeper unemployment could rise to 12%. Today it sits at 5.6%, and is on track to fall to a rate not seen since 2008, just before the GFC. The government wants to get that rate below 5% in the next couple of years, and if so, we could soon see unemployment rates lower than anything in about 50 years. But of course there's some caveats. First off, what will be the nature and depth of this new employment? 
Early indications are that about 80% of the jobs created since the recession are casual and part-time jobs. On the other hand, those are exactly the sort of jobs that dominated job losses last year. And recent ABS statistics indicate that total hours actually worked by those employed has bounced back strongly so that 1.8 billion hours were worked in March, roughly comparable to the pre-COVID data. However, it's worth looking over the coming months and year to see as the effects of JobKeeper become more distant whether this healthy trend continues. The other caveat on jobs is the distortions caused by the lack of immigrant and overseas labour coming into the country. It is unlikely that inflows of overseas labour and overseas students will get going for at least another 14 months. So skilled and unskilled shortages are expected to bedevil certain industries. Farm labour via backpackers is an obvious one, but retail and hospitality labour disproportionately filled by overseas students in particular is also a problem. One reform announced in the budget is the uncapping of hours available to overseas students who are currently here from the previous cap of 40 hours work per fortnight. As demand grows over this year and the next for labour in retail, hospitality and farm labour, wages in those areas could rise markedly along with it. The JobMaker program, a subsidy for youth jobs, failed miserably, delivering only 1,100 of a projected 450,000 jobs. However, apprenticeships and traineeships subsidised at a more generous amount were a success and the government will roll out up to 170,000 new apprenticeship subsidies and a similar number of traineeships all within the coming financial year at a cost of about $2.7 billion. On top of this, the aged care package, of which more later, will subsidise 33,000 new aged care traineeships over the four years of the forward estimates. There has been a nice windfall to the federal government in three main areas of revenue. First off, GST receipts were strong throughout the financial year, which means an extra $26 billion can be sent back to the state governments. Secondly, income tax was strong with the jobs rebound, accounting for over half of non-GST revenues. Thirdly, company tax rebounded. A big part of this was iron ore mining and export. Last year, the price of iron ore was predicted by Treasury to sink to about $40 a tonne. Instead, it recently jumped above $225 a tonne and looks likely to stay high, at least until Brazilian iron ore begins to ramp up again, which may take some time. With a billion tonnes exported from Australia at a value of around $200 billion, iron ore drives more than 10% of the Australian private economy. This has delivered about $9 billion to government tax receipts and could tip in an extra $12.5 billion over the coming financial year. At least one commentator has noted that, considering iron ore production cost per tonne, including shipping, is about 15 bucks and the sale price is now $225, it could be time to reconsider the mining windfall taxes that were dumped a decade or more ago. In this year's budget, the Treasury has again assumed a massive fall in the iron ore price, but if this assumption is as weak and disingenuous as I think it is, there will be a multi-billion dollar lump of extra revenue for the government to dish out before the next election. Speaking of which, 
This budget has renewed speculation about whether the Morrison government will seek to call an election before the end of the year. I think it might, and it will likely have a large treasure chest of funds to disperse before an election. In the budget there are two examples of what Labor is calling slush funds. Firstly, there is $8.2 billion of spending labelled as money for decisions made but not yet announced. On top of that, over the four-year forward estimates there is a tad over $10 billion of infrastructure spending that has not been linked to any particular infrastructure initiative. These two items, taken with the $8 billion or more of unbooked iron ore tax receipts that seem likely to come in, means that by year's end, the Morrison government could have about $25 billion of programs to announce in an election campaign. And that's huge. Today we've dealt mainly with jobs and revenue. When we return next week, there'll be more on aged care, childcare, the NDIS, tax changes, housing, health and domestic violence. See you then. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. So I'm just on the edge of Trades Hall and... Walking up Russell Street, you can smell this rich aroma of sausages and some interesting other stuff going on as well. There's quite a lot of people pouring in. I'm here for the Unions for Refugees barbecue. Let's uh, go in and check it out. I am came from for my friend in Eastland Detention Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I am always support for them and. I am still keep support whenever they are. I am we are in support always our friends. Mm, but eight years is not not short time. This is the too for, too long and too pain for our friend. Still in detention center more than eight years now. I am mm, really very hard, very hard to stay in detention center because I know the feeling. Because I am also eight years in detention center. The one one message for the government: Please release them, and they are the human being. They are all look like families, and they have a family. They have to see them family, and to, to they have to life. They have a life. Please release them, and this is the one message for the government, really. So, what do you think of the event tonight, then? Tonight, I'm really happy to be in here because. Uh, one of the event uh, the invite Chris Bin <laughs> really wonderful we are, I am in living in Sydney but last night I came here for the, this event oh wow <laughs> travelled travel all the way from Sydney yes yeah. yes okay. mm, really really happy to be here and uh, I'm united and say all together what do you make of tonight you know, what, what brings you out here mm. Basically, um, my name is Thanos, mm-hmm. and 
I released after four, I got my freedom four months ago after being in definite detention eight years. Um, when I got my freedom, uh, still now, I always gave my voice to my friends who still being in definite detention because uh, I know the pain of being in detention is very hard and painful. That's the thing only I, I continuously doing. And another thing, who support to my friends for me, uh, still they have been fighting for our rights, but I always give support to them as well. And um, I'm, I'm living in Sydney now, but I come came for tonight in here for barbecue and um, share my experience, what happened now after God freedom. And, uh, how is this being in definitely detention? How is part of it? That's something. If you've traveled from Sydney, what do you think of this event? This is so so exciting and, and happiness. But people are still loving us and continuously they're doing their great job. This is um, really freedom is amazing and wonderful. I always wanted to no one going to throw this again like me. Being in definite detention with no reason, it's very hard and painful. Um, I always wanted to. My friends also should be released to the community like me. Did you want to introduce yourself? Or? Uh, yeah, my name's Camille, and um, uh, I've been coming to the daily protests um, outside the Park Hotel since probably December last year. And I just really believe that the government is treating you know the refugees really appallingly actually and so I, I feel like it's not illegal well it's actually not illegal to seek asylum and you know um, I'm here because I believe that the men and the women who have uh, sought asylum and are refugees um, you know need to be supported and the government doesn't support them at the moment so yeah so it's a, just a, a cause we go to the daily protests like most nights um, and that's outside the Park Hotel and, um, and then we work we go to the um, I go to the rack meeting so they're every Monday night and you know I'm just dipping my toe in and, and seeing what little kind of what support I can offer um, you know to just help the people who are you know in need really. So what brings you out to tonight's event specifically? Uh, specifically tonight, it's a fundraiser and, it, um, you know, when I was working, because I've retired now, but when I was working I used to be a unionist and I was a um, unionist for the Australian um, Education Union and, um, you know, I just think it's important to, you know, when I can just show solidarity to um, the men and women who are here, um, probably don't have very much money because the government doesn't su supply them with very much money. And, um, you know, and particularly support the newly released um, refugees from the Park Hotel and, um, you know, because I think, you know, they deserve to be supported, really. You know, uh, as I said before, it's not illegal to seek asylum, so why should we be treating these men and women like criminals? For you, why are refugees union business? 
Well, the union's about, you know, solidarity with fellow human beings. The union is about our rights to stand up and, you know, um, demand rights for a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, basically. So I think that the unionists really, I think we need to be involved as unionists or as an ex-unionist, I need to be involved in um, supporting people who have less advantage than myself and, and other unionists, really. You know, so it's about kind of spreading the love, I suppose. Did you want to leave any other short statements? It'd be good if people wanted to support the current refugees who are in the Park Hotel. The daily protests are um, weekdays, 5.30 to 6.30, 701 Swanson Street, Carlton, and weekends at 3pm. That's all I want to say, but it'd be great if we had more people. Thanks very much, Geordie. Oh, no, no, thanks. <laughs> You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and online at 3cr.org.au. I hope you're enjoying your morning so far. We are currently halfway through some recordings from the Unions for Refugees barbecue, which was run at Trades Hall on April the 28th. There was lots of union representation there on the night and a pretty sizable crowd too, probably coming for more than just the barbecue. After some falafel cooked on the night, I set up my gear to record the speeches of the two refugees, Ramsey and Dinesh, who were both recently released after eight years in offshore detention. Stick around and listen closely to their speeches. Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective led the speeches. Uh, but now I do want to hand over to the refugees who we are here to welcome. And really, this should be the world that we live in, where people who are, are fleeing horrendous circumstances are welcome with over, open arms. It's not that world, it's one we have to fight for. Uh, they spoke also today at my union council, the AEU. Uh, they spoke at Trades Hall. Please make Ramsey welcome. Thank you for inviting us. I'm really happy to be here. Eight years in detention center after release, really very happy. My friend is still in detention center, Mendra, sorry, Park Portal and Brisbane. People are still, they are exchanged the location. They didn't give the permanent solution for us. They give the six month visa for us. Still, we are three months finished, but still have a paperwork. But I don't know after six months, what can I do? And I don't know, six months after past eight years life, we, we can't rebuild our life. You know, eight years is not short time, this is a long time. When I came here 22 years, I am now 30, 30 years old. Now it's going to, everything is online system and everything is going to uh, high level. We, we can catch up easily. Really very hard, but still in, still in detention center, after think about them, how do you, how do you the, make their life after release? Please help them and keep support for us, keep fighting for our freedom, my friend freedoms. I am always, always my, make, make my voice my friends, but still no more solution. Now, really very, very hard very hard time and keep supporting for us and keep fighting for us. We need your support always and united and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, really, I, I have to say something, but 
really very hard to say after talk about our friends in detention center really i know the feel because when i was in detention center i am down straight some of the friends release and they are happy but i am in detention center i know the pain more pain this is always when i was in there really i know the pain that's why i give the voice and keep supporting for them but you are also keep support and united and thank you so much give the opportunity keep supporting for us thank you so much thank you uh, so much ramsey uh, Ramsey came here under the Medivac uh, legislation. He has uh, shrapnel in his shoulder and in his uh, head. Uh, he was in Australia's care for eight years and that was never treated. Uh, doctors said the shrapnel could be removed from his shoulder uh, quite easily and after eight years and coming under Medivac, it is a, a damning in indictment uh, of Australia's detention regime. Uh, our next speaker, Danish, uh, is free now, and he is still feeding, fighting for the freedom of his friends. Please make him welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for inviting me and Ramsey as well. But and everywhere, me and Ramsey going to share our story for everyone because people have to know about our situation, who we are. Each time we share our story, but that's not story for us. This is our painful life. In eight years of my life were taken from them. Everyone have the personal uh, story. Especially Ramsey, he has lost his all family members when Sri Lanka is war 2009. But this, no one is listening to them. But he came to Australia seeking asylum and safety. But Unfortunately, they were took him to me as well to took to took the island. We were spend our eight years of my life in detention. It's with no reason we were punished by authorities. This is unacceptable. This is very hard a thing. Being in detention with no reason, I couldn't imagine how is being is very harder to be. After after eight years. We got freedom, but we got that freedom with, because of your guys. Your guys make action, people come to know about our situation. That's the thing, we got the freedom. And after eight years, we got the six-month visa. This is not the solution. With uh, six-month visa, we're going to, for interview or job, the company are always expecting the permanent visa holder. With very difficult to find the job uh, with permanent job. It's very hard thing to do. This is a not story, this is a real I, I felt that in my life in Sydney or Melbourne. But all the company are expecting the permanent visa border. They are expecting that's right. But we got after eight years permanent we got the temporary visa. This is not solution. And when I was in Manus Island I transferred to Australia for medical treatment. I, I did not get the treatment, but my, my treatment is all I affected with mentally when I was in Manus. Then I transferred to Australia. They they bring to me to Australia, put in the hotel room with no fresh air and sunlight. This is the not treatment. 
who were who who affected with mentally this more going this is situation make make me more worse that that time then we always continuously fighting for our freedom and you guys also make the action people comes to know our situation finally i got freedom Yes, he finally got freedom. And uh, we're coming to the end of the program. And uh, this is Sayonara for you, Jordan. Yeah. You've got bigger so, and better thing, fish to fly, fry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, full-time teaching is full-time teaching with overtime. So um, I'll, you'll probably hear me from time to time on Solidarity Breakfast, but um, I'm no longer in a presenting and editing capacity or anything like that. It's still well, been absolutely amazing to be a part of this. Really we've been, been enjoying your company. Well, it's great being here. You know, yeah. I love doing radio the same way I love teaching as well. <laughs> <laughs> so good luck. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.